the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for the people of this church. I love them. And I desire that you would meet them according to their needs. Those who are discouraged, broken hearted, that you would bind them up. You would heal their wounds, both physically and emotionally. And Lord, for we who are struggling with pride and selfishness, envy and every sort of sin, that You would convict us with Your Word. You would help us to see even more our great need for You. And God, for anyone here who does not yet know You, I pray that You would be merciful to them. To open their eyes. For God, apart from Your work, we cannot understand or recognize our need for you. We are too blinded in sin. So I pray that you'd be merciful to the lost and give them hope where only hope can be found in your Son, Jesus Christ. And give me assistance to help you meet these needs. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. So in the Passage before us, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 17 through 24, Paul delivers a thunderbolt to our expectations. The counsel that he gives the Corinthians in regard to their choices, particularly in regard to marriage, is a principle that is decisively un-American. It's completely contrary to what most Americans would expect him to say or want him to say, in fact. And the principle is really simple. He repeats it twice at the beginning of the section at the end. Live as you are called. Remain in the situation in which you are called. Essentially, don't change your circumstances. Even if they're humbling, difficult, or painful. Which those circumstances were. And this counsel is contrary to everything we have learned about being successful and gaining happiness in life. Just think about it. If you're like me, you grew up learning very quickly how to 
advance yourself in whatever situation you were in. We discern what we need to do in each social situation in order to rise up in the pecking order. Children, we maybe think it's found in collecting the best baseball cards or Pokemon cards. Getting the newest video game. Or maybe it's just getting good grades. As teenagers, wearing the coolest clothes. Athletic achievements. Having the prettiest girlfriend. Maybe it's just being willing to take the greatest risks. Being familiar with the latest music. Or maybe it's in what college you might attend. When I was in high school, I spent hours in this attempt to advance myself socially by memorizing all the lines from Top Gun, which I could probably recite most of them to you. Not all of them should be (laughs) repeated, but... I seriously did that because I thought that, man, if I could tell somebody that their body's writing checks, that their, their, their ego's writing checks that their body can't cash, then I'd look cool because Tom Cruise was cool. And this pursuit continues throughout our life in the careers that we choose. How can we advance ourselves? In our marriages? We might be tempted to marry somebody because of their money. Because of their social standing. Because they're popular. The house that we buy. Seeking promotions at work. Even bragging about our grandchildren. The gardens that we have. Our yards. Even in ministry involvement. I can testify to many ministry pursuits that I have sought after because of this motivation. Because I would advance in the eyes of my brothers and sisters within the church. And if you think about this, all of this is centered upon ourselves. It assumes victory is on our shoulders. My life is my responsibility. Therefore, you shouldn't be able to tell me what to do. With my life. This sort of mentality also breeds self-pity. Failure is my fault. I'm a victim. People are unfair. And in this self-centered way of thinking, the gospel is forgotten. Just remember where your responsibility stood in regard to your salvation. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There was nothing in us that God would find attractive. Moreover, there was nothing that we could do to please God. All of our righteousness, as we mention again and again, was like filthy rags in His sight. There was nothing we could do to gain His approval. And yet, God chose to save us despite our rebellion against Him. 
He chose us. We didn't choose God. As it says in verse 8, it is for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It was his power that caused us to come alive. And it's only his power within us still that keeps us going forward, that keeps us faithful to him. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. It's his power that keeps us faithful. Moreover, the gospel tells us that God loves us not because of anything we have done or do or perform or accomplish. Therefore, the gospel eliminates boasting. Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It also crucifies self. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now notice how the gospel attacks self, self-centeredness, On two fronts. First of all, it confronts self by saying, you've done nothing to earn your salvation. Because you were helpless. And God didn't choose you for anything you've done. On the other side, the gospel is a call to die to ourselves. To no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. Self and the gospel are diametrically opposed to each other. It might be more helpful to think of the gospel in these terms. The gospel destroys self, self self-centeredness. Or maybe more memorable, yet a little more cheesy, there is no I in gospel. Yeah, cheesy, I know, but memorable. Thanks, Cassie. There is one massive danger, though, in articulating the gospel this way that I'm aware of. And that is, it might come across as suggesting that God doesn't love us. But nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, the center of the gospel is God sent his son to die in our place so that we might be forgiven. He couldn't give a greater expression of his love for us, right? John 3, 16. So it's an expression of his love for us. God does love you even though you, that is your self-love, is the problem. He does love you, but your self-love, your self-worship, your propensity to just do what you want is the problem. And it's the gospel that's driving all of Paul's counsel to the Corinthians in regard to marriage. So before we look at what Paul says to the Corinthians in this situation, it's helpful to remember and recognize it's those principles of the gospel that's directing what he says to them. Because if we don't remember or think about the gospel first, what we read and what Paul says here is just going to sound ludicrous. It's not going to make any sense. 
because we think like Americans. But Paul doesn't. Now, Paul's already addressed their specific questions regarding celibacy, divorce, what to do if they're married to an unbeliever, singleness. And now he presents to the Corinthians the key principle that should guide all of their decisions in this area. And the principle that he gives them is live as you are called. Live as you were called. Paul gives this counsel to them precisely because he recognizes that the driving desire to change their circumstances comes not from the gospel, but from self. Namely, the fear of man, as he says says in verse 23. So it's driving them to even ask these questions. He recognizes they're not asking these questions for the sake of the gospel or because they understand the gospel. They're asking these questions because they think they're responsible to make the best of their life. Which means they don't understand the gospel. Wanting others to think more highly of them, some are considering getting circumcised. Others are seeking to cover up their circumcision. Slaves are asking if it's okay for them to flee their masters so that they can serve Christ. And beneath all of these ambitions is self-interest, self-advancement, self-preservation, self-exaltation. And so in his counsel to them, Paul exposes the lie that they have believed that changing their circumstances is what's going to lead to a better life. The lie that these Corinthians are believing is that changing their circumstances is what's going to lead to a better life. When in fact, if they just would recognize the gospel, they would recognize all that they need has already been given to them. And so, if you today are discouraged and struggling in your present circumstances... That could be in your marriage, at work, family situations, school. You need to hear what Paul is telling the Corinthians here. Joy will not be found in changing your circumstances, but in deepening your understanding of the gospel. What matters is not what you can do for God, but what God has already done for you. And is doing for you currently. And I am fully aware that this is a very hard sell, especially in our culture. How do you convince an ambitious American that living for self-advancement is wrong? Well, I would ask, how would you convince a 19th century slave owner that what he was doing was wrong? Because for him, he could easily go to a verse in Scripture to defend a right to have property. And it's true. We do have rights to property. But not that kind of property as Christians. My point is it's hard to get people to question convictions that are deeply instilled because of our culture. We take it for granted 
that we should be able to advance ourselves. That we should advance ourselves. If we don't, we're doing something wrong. Sinful, maybe. So my thesis, what I'd say is Paul's thesis, is this, in this passage, what I believe is Paul's thesis, is that God's will for you is not for you to fix your situation, but to believe and apply the gospel in your situation. And he, he does, he, he demonstrates this by two major points. First of all, recognize that God is sovereign over your circumstances. And then secondly, recognize that you're a slave. You're a slave to Jesus Christ. So let's first look first at the first one. Recognize that God is sovereign over your circumstances. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, into which God has called him. And this is my rule in all the churches. So Paul demonstrates here that the truth that God is sovereign in two particular ways. First of all, in reference to our allotted life situations. God is sovereign over all the circumstances that you're facing right now in life. In every circumstance that you've faced. He's sovereign over it. And secondly, in calling us to salvation, God was sovereign. Despite our former life of rebellion, He saved us. He called us out of that. If He was sovereign over our rebellion and saved us from it, how much more is He sovereign now in our circumstances? So the word Paul uses here that it's worth paying attention to is assigned. Merizo in the Greek. It refers to an allotment that God has given us. Now this is one of my favorite words in Scripture. I love doing word studies because every time this word gets used, it demonstrates and actually emphasizes that God has given to each person a portion. And a portion that is ours. We're not to take more than what's been allotted to us, and we're supposed to be completely faithful with what God has allotted to us. And we're responsible for what we've been given. In Romans 12.3, Paul uses it in reference to spiritual gifts. That each of us has been given spiritual gifts to be faithful with. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10.13, Paul uses the word in reference to to the area of responsibility that he was given as an apostle. He says, But we won't boast beyond limits, but we'll boast only in regard to the area of influence God has assigned to each of us, to reach even to you. God gave Paul an assignment, an allotment of responsibility. He was an apostle to the Gentiles. And his responsibility was to fulfill that allotment. So, Our allotment is something God has already given to us. It's not something we need to discover. It's ours. It's what we're in. It's what we have. Maybe we might be more aware of it, but it's not something we have to search for. The allotment that Paul is talking about here is the life circumstance that we're in. So again, let this be an encouragement to you, especially if you're struggling. Your situation is not an accident. God has allotted to you your job, your coworkers, your spouse, your church, all of your strengths, all of your weaknesses, all of your pains and griefs. 
Not one of them is an accident. It's God's allotment to you. Some of those allotments we appreciate more than others. But He's sovereign over all of them. None of them are an accident. The second way we see the sovereignty of God in this verse is in reference to our call to salvation. Now the grammar in, this, uh, in the Greek is a little tricky. And so there's a difference of opinion in how to translate the verse. The verse uh, I think the ESV takes some unfortunate liberty that actually interprets the verse incorrectly. And so I brought, put the NET translation up there, the Net Bible translation, because I think it gets it a little bit more accurate. It should read, read, in my opinion, Nevertheless, as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God called each person, so must he live. So, what this emphasizes is that it's not so much how the situation we are in when God called us to salvation that's being referred to, but the fact that God called us despite our situation. So it's the, the calling is not referring to a vocation or what we're doing, but rather his call to salvation regardless of what we were doing. So to give some clarity, I... I Um, copied from David Garland's commentary, he explains, Paul could have recoined the meaning of the word to apply to one's stations in life, but his normal usage refers to God's beckoning of persons to salvation. In fact, every time the word is used, that's what it's talking about. This would be the exception, if it's what's supposed to mean. So the lack of any attestation in the New Testament or elsewhere that the word calling was used to mean station in life or occupation strongly argues against the interpretation that applies to the condition or circumstances in which believers found themselves when God's offer of salvation reached them. So when Paul uses the word call, he's not referring to what we should do with our lives, what our calling is. It's referring to what God has done with our lives. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were dead in sin, and God called us to life. Just consider how Paul used this word in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Let's consider the calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He's referring to their calling. He didn't call them because they were special and strong and wise. He called them despite their impotent situation. Since we could not change our self-loving hearts, God opened our heart to trust Him in His message of the gospel. He called us to life When we were born again. That's what's being talked about here. I love uh, Charles Wesley's words. I've quoted to them before you before. When he says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke in my dungeon filled with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Wesley is describing his call to salvation. His chains fell off. 
the dungeon flamed with light. So Paul's referencing our salvation here, not our careers. Paul's point is that God, since God was sovereign over our salvation, he is equally sovereign. Catch this. He's equally sovereign over our present circumstances. That's the point. If God called you when you were a rebel against his will, how much more sovereign is he now as, his, as his, you're his children? And therefore we can rest knowing that God has placed us right now in our present circumstances. He's given us our health problems. He's given us our family challenges. He's given us our country that we live in. And Paul's counsel here is not unique counsel to the Corinthians. As he says, this is my rule in all the churches. This is the principle that I seek to help them apply. When they ask me, Paul, what's God's will for my life? This is the counsel I give. Live as you're called. And he explains this principle now, living as you're called, by illustrating it two ways. By circumcision, he talks about circumcision, and then slavery. One of those exemplifies the great religious barrier of the day, circumcision. It's also a racial barrier between Jews and Gentiles. The other is the great social barrier, slavery. So let's look first of all at circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So again, circumcision was the great religious barrier, particularly between Jews and Gentiles. It comes up in Ephesians, comes up in Galatians. Probably others, I'm just not, they're not... Uh, Sure, Colossians was an issue. Gentile Christians often sought to get circumcised in order to demonstrate their zeal to affirm that they, they too were really children of Abraham. And Paul's saying, you don't need to do that. Likewise, there were Jewish Christians who wanting to become all things to all men and gain approval from their Gentile neighbors sought to cover up the marks of circumcision. It's actually a medical term. I won't give you But it's a medical term that they performed to cover up the marks of circumcision. And Paul tells them, neither one counts for anything. Now catch that. Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, Circumcised on the eighth day, just said circumcision counts for nothing. Now, that's a thunderbolt if you're a Jewish person in the Hellenistic era, area of the first century. Circumcision is nothing? I was like, yeah. All that matters... He says, is keeping the commandments of God. Paul's point is that faithfulness is not demonstrated by some great act, some radical decision that you got to make for Christ. Faithfulness isn't 
demonstrated through radical action, but simple obedience to God's word. You want to show how much you love Jesus, he's saying? You don't have to go get circumcised. Just obey him. Just obey his word. As Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Remember what he told Peter, John 21? Peter, do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep. Just obey me. You don't have to do something radical to prove your love for Christ. You don't have to go and make your mark on this world. The best way to prove your love for Christ is to simply obey Him in your current situation. Now you might be asking, as, as I asked, but isn't that how love is demonstrated? Isn't it demonstrated through taking great action? I mean, think of the cross. God shows His own love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The greater the act, the greater the love. That's true. But what we need to be careful of is often in our desires to do great acts for God, it's not just simply driven by love like it was with God sending His Son. It's often driven by self. And a personal example, I was just confessing to the, 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 other, the brothers at our uh, recent elder meeting that so much of my life, I, I love missionary biographies. I've read so many missionary biographies. That's why I reference them all the time. I'm so encouraged and inspired by them. And, and, and so much, I mean, what I even drove me to want to be a missionary when Julie and I got married was because I wanted to be like these missionaries. But what I've become more aware of as I've grown to know myself better is that what was often behind that desire to be a missionary was I wanted to gain the love and respect and admiration that those missionaries had. And what I was confessing to, those, to our brothers is that's, that's less and less of a desire anymore. Now when I read a missionary biography, I want to know, I want to be like them. So when I read about Eric Little serving uh, fellow um, prisoners in the internment camp during World War II and it was overseen by the Japanese in China, and he, he's cleaning latrines with his bare hands, getting up early in the morning to serve his fellow prisoners, eating junk. What I ask myself is not, hey, how can I make a name for myself like that? It's, how, how does he do that, God? I want to be that kind of man. Not just people think that I'm that kind of man. But it's so easy. So much of what we desire to do in ministry, it's really not about loving people and exalting God. It's often just about us. Self creeps in in so many different ways. Consider the example of slavery as well. Paul says, were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Now we're familiar with this word, bondservant. As you know, it's the Greek word doulos that simply means slave. We translate it differently in English translations because the word slave makes we don't like um, for valid reasons. But it just means slave. It's a person who has no rights. That's the property of somebody else. God tells 
those who are currently slaves here, don't be concerned about it. That's his counsel. Don't worry yourselves about it. So you're a slave. The word means to bother yourself. Don't try to figure out a means of changing your situation of slavery. If the opportunity avails itself and the, uh, the, your master gives you a chance to, be, to, be, to gain manumission of your slavery, great, take it. You will be more freed up to serve the Lord. But don't assume that you need to be freed in order to best glorify God. You don't need to stop being a slave to best glorify God. You can glorify God, which as a Christian is what we want more than anything else, as a slave. That's what you should be worried about. How can I glorify God? How can I obey God as a slave, not how can I escape my oppressed situation? This counsel makes no sense to us unless we recognize the true power in the gospel. If advancement and bettering our life or ease or health or security are what we most value in life, remaining a slave will just sound offensive to us. It won't sound like good counsel at all. Now, we would take it for granted that if a person was in an oppressive situation, that they should seek to free themselves. And frankly, if somebody came to me and, and asked, what should I do in this situation? Maybe they're in a really nasty work situation. My gut counsel probably would be, you should probably get another job. But Paul says, no, What is best is not personal freedom or social advancement or anything else that this world craves and values. What matters is obedience to God in whatever situation he's placed you in. And you might be asking yourself, well, where's the hope here, Paul? You've just shattered any hope I might have of happiness. I can't change. What hope do I have? Well, that's just the point. There is immense hope. Far greater hope than changing your circumstances. Catch that. The hope he offers is hope that will allow you to rise above your circumstances. To have joy In the midst of sorrow. Paul offers hope that transcends circumstances if you'll have it. This is the hope that Paul provides. God is with you and he's sovereign over your circumstances. God is with you and he's sovereign over your circumstances. They're not an accident. They're governed by an all-knowing, all-powerful God who loves you as much as He loves His own children. And one has to truly believe in the love and sovereignty of God to live like this. You have to truly believe these things. 
But of course, that's why we say we're saved by faith. That's the kind of faith that we're saved by, right? This is saving faith. That we would trust God and take Him at His word despite what we see. I mean, who is, who's the great example of faith? Abraham. Not considering himself, though he was a hundred years old, he took God at his word. In hope against hope, he believed. Being fully convinced that God was able to do exactly what he had promised. It's the faith of Job who said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. It's the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So recognize that the the theology that supports and drives Paul's counsel to the Corinthians here is rooted in a wide-eyed understanding of the gospel. The gospel to Paul is so real. This is the hope that he offers. Remember the gospel, Corinthians. Don't feel like you have to change your circumstances as horrible as they might be. Remember the gospel. You've been bought with a price, and therefore, you're a slave of Christ. Notice what he says in verses 22 and 23. For he who is called in the Lord is a bondservant, is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So if you're a Christian, your identity is not found in your ethnic heritage, your career, your station in life. Your identity is that you are Christ's. You're a Christian. You were bought with a price. And notice what he says in verse 23. Do not become slaves of men. You're bought with a price. So was somebody trying to enslave them? Was there some wicked slave trader preying upon Christians kidnapping them maybe as they're coming out of church forcing them into bondage yes but not a physical slave trader but sin slavery to self the slavery that assumes that your merit your identity your significance is bound up in what you do The slavery that might prompt you to hide your ethnic heritage of circumcision in order to be thought better of. The slavery that might prompt you to find another job where others might appreciate your quality better. The slavery that might make you leave your marriage to prove your spirituality to others. Or that might prompt you to remain celibate within your marriage. The slavery that might prompt you to divorce your unbelieving husband because you deserve better. After all, he's unclean. The slavery that might make you pretend to be somebody that you're not. 
The slavery that might lead you to say, I'm my own person. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want. Because you want to impress people with your independent spirit. Don't be fooled. It's all slavery to men. Behind all of those things is self. Wanting to gain admiration and respect and love from others. Slavery to men. And if you struggle with any of those, the question for you is, do you want to be free from it? Embrace Christ and let Him set you free from your love of self. Again, let's be clear. The problem is not the men, the world out there that are oppressing you. It's craving that you have in your own heart to be esteemed and admired. And if you want freedom, the way to do that is embrace what God has given to you. Embrace your allotment and set your heart on honoring Him and obeying Him in that circumstance. A good way to maybe check where you're at with this. Spiritual temperature check. If we truly understand the gospel and fully embrace our freedom, we will be fully okay with others thinking that we're irrelevant. If we truly understand the gospel, we'll be okay with others thinking that we're irrelevant. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. So again, it's not wrong to seek change, but we should seek change for Christ's interests, not simply our own. If those changes will be clearly for God's glory and his advancement of his kingdom and the spread of the gospel, make those choices by all means. But if not, wait. Wait within your current circumstances. And instead of trying to figure out how to improve your circumstances, focus simply on how you can be more faithful with the allotment God's given you. Notice the word that Paul uses in verse 24. It's the word remain. In the Greek, we often translate it abide. Let him there abide with God. Same word that's used in John 15. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So what matters is not our circumstances, but are we abiding with God? In fact, the hope of improving our circumstances might actually be the greatest threat. I'll try and illustrate that with an analogy. So you know that Jesus has rescued you from your Slavery to sin. And he's brought you to dwell in his house. To live with him. And abide with him. And Christ tells you that in this house you will have everything that you need. It's fully furnished. He's provided all of your needs. And as long as you abide in that house, you will bear much fruit. But ever since you were ransomed, your former slave master... His name is Self. 
has been trying to kidnap you so that you would go and serve him again. And he lives just outside the house. And he tries to allure you, entice you to coming out to serve him by giving various enticements. Academic degrees, luscious foods, fun, excitement, applause of neighbors, a beautiful woman walking by in a red dress. He also offers various opportunities for you to sacrifice and show your quality to others. But once you walk out that door, slave master self will nab you. And Jesus will need to come rescue you yet again and have to beat slave master self into humiliation until he sets you free. Now consider this. Are all those things that slave master self offers inherently bad? Most of them aren't. And that's why we justify chasing them. The problem is not those things in themselves, but the problem is who's offering those things? Who wants you to take those great things? Self. The very person you died to when you were saved. Christ saved you from self. So we need to be far more skeptical of ourself in all of our decisions. So these gospel-driven decision-making principles that Paul gives here, recognizing God's sovereignty, that we're slaves of Christ, and that we have this sinful tendency to self-exaltation, they apply not just to these big decisions in life, should I get circumcised or not, should I be a slave or not, but they apply even to the little decisions that we make. For instance, have you noticed that we tend to assume that we're right in almost every conflict? Just think about the last conflict you had with your spouse, your godly spouse, whom you say you will die for. My guess is in that conflict, you were right, she was wrong, she was right, you were something. And we immediately become self-defensive. We, we defend self. Even when Christ wants to humble self, we defend slave master self. If we're honest, we would realize that even as a Christian, most of our choices are self-oriented. Most of the things we choose to do is because of what we want. So I was telling my community group this week, in driving to community, car, community group, I, my heart was full, lots of things I was wrestling with, partly in, in conjunction with this passage, and I just wanted to sing. Just wanted to sing praises to the Lord and have my kids join in. They weren't as interested. Instead, they wanted to talk to their mom about preservatives and fast food and why they're bad, which I wasn't particularly interested in engaging in. And so, conflict. I want to praise God. I can defend that with Scripture. Scripture says nothing about preservatives, at least not in foods. Right? So should I shut down the conversation in order to do the more spiritual thing? My answer is no. Because what would really be driving that, even though I can give chapter and verse? It was self. It's what I wanted. Truly God-honoring desires would be in, seen in asking, what do my wife and kids need right now? 
Or maybe it's just in humbly confessing my need. Hey, kids, my heart is sorrowful. I need to pray. Would you guys be willing to pray with me? We can talk about preservatives later in a couple years. Our desires and needs are constantly in conflict with one another's. And so it's wrong to assume that what we want in the day, even if what we want is in line with God's word. The gospel teaches us that what's truly best for us is obedience and selflessness. And again, so it's, just, it's safe to assume that you're probably not right initially. Be skeptical of what you want. And I believe that if we become more aware of our self-centeredness, it will help us to, be, to realize really how sinful we still are. And in doing so, it will help us to recognize how much more we need God's grace and it will drive us to greater and greater humility and worship of Him for what He's done for us. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a humble people. We know that You have... You've set us free from ourselves. And that our self has never taken us to places that truly satisfy. And we know that that is just our tendency. And so I pray that you would help us to fight pride and self-centeredness and greed and every other form of sin. And that as a people, as a church, we would grow to be more patient with one another, more gracious with one another, more eager to build up and encourage and to love, that we really would look like your Son in not just what people see, but also in our hearts as well. We ask that you would do these things in your name. Amen.